0: You're listening to STEMcast, brought to you by McGill IGEM.
1: Today, we have the privilege of speaking to Dr. Eugene Park, a specialist in the pathophysiology of traumatic brain injury and brain injury therapeutics to improve the outcomes of traumatic brain injury. Dr. Park graduated with a master's from the Department of Physiology at U of T and a PhD from the Institute of Medical Sciences at U of T as well. Dr. Park is currently working as a research, senior researcher Associate at Unity Health. Toronto. Thank you for joining us, Eugene.
0: Thanks for
2: having me. Um, So so we know, sorry, uh, we know that your lab um, works on many, many different focuses with with respect to neural trauma. Could you give us and our listeners just a quick rundown on the lab's main focuses and what you're trying to accomplish?
0: Sure. So uh, the main focus or the thematic focus of our lab has always been obviously on traumatic brain injury. But more specifically, we've always been interested in a component of brain injury that uh, we call diffuse axonal injury or white matter injury. So in your brain, you've got uh, very generally sort of we talk about gray matter and white matter. And gray matter would be the neurons and sort of what we people think of in terms of cells. Uh, but then there's the white matter, which would be all the connecting. Um, I guess, cabling, if you will, the axons that connect from one, uh, from one neuron to another. And they're essentially, uh, you can think of them as wires that carry information between different parts of your brain. And what often happens uh, with brain injury, and whether it's a mild injury or a severe injury, you'll get injury to these axons. And so you can imagine if you can't have different parts of your brain communicating mm-hmm. uh, or communicating in sync, then things start to go wrong. Um, So we've looked at understanding uh, mechanisms of how uh, white matter injury occurs after head injury uh, and then ways of, you know, um, protecting the brain uh, through therapeutics in order to minimize the amount of damage that occurs to the white matter.
2: Very cool. Um, So was neural trauma always your goal or can you explain to us how you got here? Like, what did your path look like? um as an academic
0: sure so you know in my undergrad i was i think like many uh students i didn't really have a set direction of course there was always you know this idea that i would um go to medical school and that you know for for the bulk of students that sort of seems to be the goal um And it wasn't necessarily something that appealed to me. And also, I don't think my marks were quite where they needed to be just because of, you know, the way the system set up and in terms of cutoffs. Um, But then when I finished my undergrad, I did some work um, or during my undergrad, rather, I was doing some work at um, a an organization in Toronto that uh, provides um, supportive housing care for people with physical disabilities. So a lot of the people in this uh, in this organization had spinal cord injuries. And so that was sort of my first introduction to people living with spinal cord injuries. And that gave me some insight into the sort of challenges that they faced on a sort of daily living aspect. And it really got me interested in understanding why, you know, they had limitations in function. So we think of spinal cord injury, well, you know, your spinal cord gets injured, it carries signals from your brain to your body. Why did people have these different manifestations um, of impairments uh, why were some people quadriplegic while others you know had more you know function than others and it wasn't only limited to you know your arms and legs there's all sorts of other things that you have to think about as well so what goes on internally what happens to bowel movements and and how do you deal with that sort of thing uh, so i applied to the university of toronto's um, uh, physiology program and i got into a lab that looked at uh, mechanisms or they studied spinal cord injury specifically um, at a preclinical level, so in, in animal models. And that was really my first introduction into neurotrauma. And after I finished that master's degree, it just sort of naturally progressed into my next uh, undertaking, which was my uh, graduate work, my PhD, which was in brain trauma. So, you know, neurotrauma. There are many overlaps in neurotrauma when it comes to spinal cord injury and brain injury. There are a lot of shared mechanisms. Uh, the architecture and the anatomy is obviously quite different, but um, it allowed me to carry over some understanding and expertise from one domain into the other. And so that's where I've continued on to this day.
2: That's that's excellent. Um, so how does your work, does your work play in a lot with um, concussions and, or is your your kind of expertise in neural trauma of different sorts?
0: So, you know, there there are many different ways of getting your brain injured. Um, and there are also a lot, and so we like to categorize things. I think people like to categorize things because it makes it easier to understand, digest. So in, in our field, you know, we like to classify things as, you know, a mild, a moderate or a severe injury. And uh, concussion sort of being at that mild end. And then at the severe end, you would have you know, on the on the borderline of impairment or maybe even death. Um, and within that realm of mild, moderate, severe, you also have different, um, I guess, sort of anatomical distributions of injury. So you can have um, you can get a hit on the head and present with a very focal injury in that spot where you got hit, or you can end up with another kind of injury altogether where. Um, you know you get hit on the head but then if you were to get a scan at the hospital a ct scan you would see injury all over the brain and so that's what we call a diffuse injury so our lab tends to work well it's hard to say that we focus on one specific area but um, we tend to look at mechanisms in general and what really guides our work is the questions that we ask Um, so for example you know if we're looking at diffuse axonal injury or white matter injury, and there's a particular aspect of that injury that we're interested, well, then we tailor the injury model to address that question. And so it may be that, you know, we're interested in looking at um, what happens to the axons after a concussion. So then we tailor the model to be more mild in that sense. And we know we don't have to have, you know, such an extreme injury that we would have, you know, Lots of hemorrhage and that sort of thing, and bleeding in the brain, because that's not typically what you see with concussion. So it, it really comes down to the kinds of questions that you're gonna you're gonna be asking, and what it is that we want to answer. So, you know, for example, um, many years ago, we began to look at the effect of blast injuries, primary blast injuries, um, and what we were trying to address was whether or not. Soldiers who were coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq, who had been exposed to blast injuries at a sufficient distance away that they weren't, you know, being thrown around and they weren't having these obvious head injuries, but whether or not that shock wave was having an effect on their brain. And so, you know, it's sort of akin to a concussion or a touchless concussion. And so, we went about creating um, a device that basically reproduced a miniature shock wave and we were able to look at the brains in our animal models. And we found that in fact, with a very low level shock wave, you had all sorts of changes going on in the brain that could be construed as having, you know, functional and um, physiological
1: impairments. To follow up on that, I, I guess, what kind of model organisms do you guys mainly focus on within your laboratory and how does that inform the work that can be then furthered for human studies? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um,
0: our lab works specifically, well, specifically with rats and with zebrafish. And we also use cell culture systems. Uh, in the field, other labs will use mice, um, sometimes even rabbits and pigs. And, you know, there, there's advantages and disadvantages to all the different uh, organisms that you use. We like to use the rats because genetically they're quite similar to humans. There's about a 78% genetic compatibility between those two species. And so that we know that the response to brain injury in terms of molecular pathways is going to be very similar um, between humans and, and, and rats. Um, they're small, they breed quickly, they're easy to handle, and the device that we use in order to produce these brain injuries, you know, can be scaled down and tailored for that uh, organism. Um, other labs like to use mice, they're even smaller. Um, which can be challenging from a technical standpoint, but mice have sort of the added advantage of having a lot of different knockouts and strains. So you can then begin to have genetic manipulations on your animals to see whether or not, you know, one particular gene or protein is directly involved in the injury process. Um, A couple of years ago, we developed a model using zebrafish, which is sort of an upcoming area of research. you'd sort of think, well, what relationship does a zebrafish have to a mammalian species? Well, genetically, again, there's actually quite a lot of homology or overlap um, between these species, between fish and mammals. So you can actually extrapolate a lot of the data from a zebrafish and apply it into a mammalian species. Um, now, the tricky part is how do you injure a zebrafish? Because you know the brain is tiny, it's like a millimeter big. And so what we did was we developed um, this tiny um, focused, what's called a high food device, a high intensity focused ultrasound that would essentially fire a very tiny targeted uh, ultrasound wave into the zebrafish's brain. So we could essentially concuss them um, at a millimeter level so that we were only directing it to the brain. And from there, we could look at behavioral effects and uh, have access to, you know, uh, with zebrafish, you have access to all sorts of genetic manipulations the same way you do with the mouse. Uh, So that opened up a whole other avenue of research as well. Um, Some labs work with pigs. So it's a large species to to deal with, and you have to have the right sort of facility to to allow that to happen. But what a pig does, it addresses scaling issues. So it's one thing to injure a, a rat brain that may be only two and a half centimeters. And you can imagine that the biomechanics of how you transduce a force from a brain that size to something a human size can be quite different. And so working with a pig brain gets you a lot closer to what a human brain mass would be, because with brain injuries, you've got acceleration and deceleration of tissues. And we've got a large mass behind that. You know, that's going to create a lot of inertial effects in terms of shearing on the tissues. And a a pig brain can really recapitulate a lot of those biomechanics as well.
2: That's really cool. It's actually really fascinating how in-depth neuro-studies of the brain are going. Um, you know, like even thirty years ago, whenever someone got a really major concussion, they were just expected to kinda go on with their lives and you know, it's everything's oh you're okay, like just go back and play or whatever, right? Um and I personally I've had a few concussions and you know, like the what I was told to do is to just sit in a dark room with no stimuli and just try to let your brain heal. Um, but obviously the science has come a really long way and Is there anything you can tell us about the implications of brain damage and like what you've seen from your studies with model organisms?
0: Mm -hmm. So, you know, the the research has come a long way. Uh, And at the same time, you know, primary care for people with head injuries has progressed in terms of, you know, getting patients um, triaged into the hospital quickly and getting them scans to see what's going on. But at the same time, despite all of this progress... There's actually, believe it or not, a very large divide between what happens clinically and how decisions are made clinically versus what we do in research. Um, And the truth is, after 30 years of research, of of really beginning to tease apart a lot of the mechanisms involved in brain injury, um, there's still a lot to learn. But even more so, a lot of that uh, work in research hasn't actually translated into clinical practice. And part of it has to do with technical technological limitations. So for example, if you get a concussion or what people perceive to be a concussion, you know, there's usually outward signs. So did you lose consciousness? Um, you know, Do you have problems with recall? And that sort of thing, did you see stars? Well, so, a lot of these are sort of outward, um, I guess, manifestations of what's going on in the brain, but we don't really know what's going on in the brain. So if you've lost consciousness and you're seeing stars, what do the doctors do? They send you to the hospital and you get a CT scan. Um, And so first of all, you know, one of the criteria for the definition of a concussion is, did you lose consciousness? And if you don't lose consciousness, well, then they don't scan you because they say, well, you're probably fine. And what we know from research is that's actually not the case. You can have quite extensive brain damage without even losing consciousness. So there's a whole cohort of people that may be missing, uh, being diagnosed. Uh, the other issue as well is, you know, so you go and you get a CT scan and the CT scan shows that there's nothing going on. Well, CT scans are great. It's a phenomenal piece of technology, but it's also limited in its sensitivity in being able to detect things at a cellular or a molecular level. So in the lab, we know, you know, there's a certain threshold where cells begin to be damaged and they'll shed proteins and, you know, all sorts of things start to change in terms of receptors and how neurons are behaving. Uh, but you can't always pick those up clinically, um, so there there is a disconnect there in terms of what is being performed in terms of primary care, uh, and what we know in research. And you know, one is that the the clinical sphere and the research sphere sphere don't always talk to each other very well. Um, the other is that some of these things are very difficult to implement sometimes. Um, and you know, with things like concussion, it's not always obvious who has an injury and who doesn't. So when you've got uh, constraints and budget, you know, it's not always feasible to send everybody in for a scan. And if you wanted to sort of up the, the sensitivity of your scan and move into an MRI, well we know that people who want to get MRIs for other conditions, you know, have to wait a long time. So now if you have a whole bunch of people coming in with suspected concussions, you can see how that can strain the healthcare system. Um, you know, and so unfortunately you had a concussion at some point. Um, and it's it's interesting that you know, doctors will prescribe certain regimens. So, you know, what was told to you was stay in the dark, don't excite your brain, take it easy, let your brain heal. And some of the evidence does suggest that that is the appropriate thing to do. So what we know from our, from our animal studies is that with brain injury, you have uh, a, neurotram- a neurotransmitter glutamate that gets released in the brain. And that sort of hyper your brain. It can also damage the cells in your brain. So that's part of the reasoning why doctors will tell people with concussions to go in the dark, uh, you know, avoid watching TV or avoid any kind of visual stimulation. So there's there is a scientific basis for that. Uh, but again, as the, the, the consensus on that isn't entirely clear. Um, I was just at a talk last week by one a leading person who's doing clinical imaging And he was saying that there are some lines of thought that are saying, no, actually, one of the best things you can do is to continue to use your brain, not not in in a very strenuous way, way, but sort of that um, philosophy of use or lose it, that you want to keep the brain moving as though it was a a muscle that you want to keep exercising, keep healthy. Um, So that's in terms of the fear of concussion. Now, if you sort of dial it up and we talk about moderate or severe injuries, um, the truth is that after all these years uh, of, of study and research, we've come up with all sorts of drugs and therapeutics uh, that can improve outcome in animal models, but none of that has actually translated into um, clinical practice because every time that they've run a clinical trial to test a drug or a therapy, it hasn't actually shown to improve outcome in patients. So it becomes a very costly sort of endeavor. Uh, And, you know, it's a bit discouraging because, you know, we we say as clinicians or or as researchers, well, all of this stuff that we've learned doesn't seem to apply to humans. And the questions that arise are, is there that much difference between the animals that we're using or is it the models that we're using? Have we not figured out the right dose of these drugs? Um, You know, did we miss the window to treat people with these drugs? So if somebody gets a head injury, uh, a severe head injury, and they get brought into the hospital. You know, there's a certain window of maybe six hours after injury, uh, which is sort of the earliest that you could probably get a drug into the person after all the other tests and triaging has been done. So there's those sort of limitations as well. And if these molecular mechanisms of injury are happening within the first couple minutes, well, doesn't matter what you give or when you give it. If you've missed that window, you're never going to protect the brain or heal the brain. Uh, so it becomes a very, very tricky question. Um, and, and something I didn't sort of clarify at the beginning, which is worth mentioning is when you get a head injury, you know, people think of, you know, getting hit on the head, whether, you know, it's in hockey or in a car accident uh, and your brain gets injured and you're seeing stars, that's not the end of your injury. So that moment of impact is what we call a primary injury. And that happens in the first, you know, sort of 20 milliseconds of impact. And depending on how hard you get hit, your brain is gonna deform and it's gonna slosh around in your skull. It's sort of a big sort of mass of jello that's encased in a fluid within your skull, which is a solid object. And so there is some play in there. And as your head gets accelerated one way or the other, or if you get spun around really quickly, you know, you can think of some of these awful collisions in football or hockey, your brain is gonna twist and pull and tug on all the parts inside. That's the primary injury. So that causes the initial shearing and tearing. After that primary injury, you have what's known as secondary injury. And that's really what the focus of research has been on. So your brain actually continues to degenerate in secondary injury because things start to leak. You get, you know, increases in calcium. Your ion, um, the, the ion levels in your brain start to change. You've got all these uh, proteases, so enzymes that get activated that will begin to degrade proteins. So it's an ongoing sort of degeneration of the brain. And that can happen anywhere from minutes to weeks to months and even years after injury. Uh, So that's really what we're trying to address. Um, And that sort of highlights uh, one aspect of research, which is looking at uh, understanding those mechanisms and how to minimize them. So neuroprotection, if you will. And then the other aspect that um, other people look at is neuro regeneration. So once the brain has been injured, you've protected it as best you can to prevent these secondary injury mechanisms from happening. And now what can we do in terms of regenerating the brain to actually, you know, physically repair those broken connections?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really awesome answer. And that kind of brings us to the, the super interesting thing that that I want to talk about, because it's super important to reduce brain injury and avoid it because it can cascade all sorts of diseases. But if you maybe want to tell us a little about kind of the diseases it can cascade or the other effects it can cause beyond just the simple, you know, for one week, you have to lay in the darkness, you can't really function well, how can it affect you well beyond the immediate injury?
0: Right. So there's, you know, there's all sorts of implications to getting a head injury uh, in terms of development of other neurological diseases as you get older. And, uh, you know, there's evidence that suggests that people who get uh, head injuries, whether it's a concussion or a moderate injury, have a higher predisposition for developing neurodegenerative disorders, you know, 30, 40 years down the road. So things like Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's, you know, you've sort of primed your brain with all these mechanisms that are going to contribute to developing these diseases down the road. Now, it doesn't happen to everybody, uh, but... You know the, the epidemiological data certainly seems to point towards an increased disposition to developing these disorders and within that you know you've, there's there's all sorts of factors that we have to think about so you know everyone's got a different genetic makeup some people have a predisposition a predisposition to develop these things to begin with so does a concussion or a, a moderate head injury kind of just sort of lower that bar even further um, so it's it's not it's it's not uh, an insignificant thing to get a concussion Uh, or any kind of head injury for that matter. And, you know, while the vast majority of people who get a mild head injury will be fine after a few months, um, there is sort of a lingering percentage of people that we don't quite understand why, say 1% to 2% who continue to have symptoms. Um, And that, you know, is a lifelong kind of thing and can be very debilitating and and can affect your life um, permanently. Um, And it may seem like a small number if only 1% of people, have ongoing symptoms. But when you consider that you have hundreds of thousands of concussions a year, you know, and you take 1% of that 100,000, that year after year, that begins to add up to a lot of people who have sort of ongoing symptoms and and quality of life issues as well. Um, So, you know, which which is why primary, uh, primary prevention, things like helmets are so important because if you can avoid these things altogether, It makes a really, really big difference, Uh, which is why I'm so adamant about my kids wearing, you know, bicycle helmets when they ride. And and I think part of that is just getting that sort of um, society to understand that a concussion isn't an insignificant thing. Um, There are a lot of uh, implications to getting a concussion when you're young and things that you should be thinking about that may happen to you down the road that you can't really foresee at this point. But there's certainly things going on in our brain that we have to think about.
2: Yeah, certainly. And I, I I, think, as I mentioned earlier, I think society's viewpoint on neural trauma and neural damage is definitely growing in that respect. You know, I think everyone's getting a lot more knowledgeable about the effects of brain damage and how, you know, we just talked about how that can cascade into greater damage future in your life. Um, But you also mentioned earlier neural regeneration. And I know your lab does quite a bit of research into maybe even using stem cells for neural therapeutics. Can you kind of break that down for us and tell us a little bit about what your lab has learned from that?
0: Sure, so, uh, you know, stem cells is a very broad term that describes, um, you know, any kind of cell that is in a state where it can continue to proliferate as if it was sort of um, like uh, a fetal tissue, if you will. So, you know, when you're in the womb, you start off as a single cell and then that single cell divides and continues to divide and over time with development to different signaling cues your cells begin to specialize and a stem cell is sort of an unspecialized cell where it can continue to develop and grow and the the the, the excitement over stem cells is that we had a, a tool or a cell type that we could hope that we could hopefully use to repair or replenish cells in the brain um, in the hopes of reconstructing people, of reconstructing parts of the brain that may have been damaged. Um, And it gets a bit more specific, um, and I won't get into too many details, but you can sort of have cells that are kind of halfway there. So you can have things like uh, neural precursor cells that have more of a neuron phenotype, and they still have some plasticity to them, but you know that they're going to differentiate into a neuron or something that's a, a cousin of a neuron um, we've worked in our lab with cells, uh, called endothelial, endothelial precursor cells. So these cells are still somewhat immature, but they don't differentiate into neurons. What they differentiate into are the cells that would give rise to the blood vessels in your brain. So that's, you know, just as important because your, your brains use up a lot of energy in order to function. Uh, so they have to have a good blood supply. And so One of the areas that gets damaged during brain injury, both in mild and severe injuries, is the vasculature. So we looked at taking uh, these endothelial progenitor cells, I call them, and introducing introducing them into the injured brain and seeing whether or not we could devascularize the tissues. Um, And what we found, uh, very similar to what other groups have found, is that there's some limited regeneration that occurs with the introduction of stem cells into the injured brain and this also applies to the spinal cord but what is interesting is that it it, it's not having that effect of regrowing the way people sort of expect it to what stem cells really are good at is producing a lot of factors that are conducive to sort of growth and repair So they're putting out all these chemicals and proteins that make the cells happy. And what that seems to be doing is limiting the extent of damage that's happening to the brain um, that that goes along with secondary injury. Uh, We don't see a lot of stem cells that actually graft into the tissues to actually reform new neurons or new blood vessels. There is to some degree, but there's something there in terms of signaling that isn't allowing us to sort of regrow a whole new brain or the the part of brain that's missing. And, you know, um, if you look at uh, spinal cord injury, for example, you know, you think of the spinal cord that gets severed or crushed and it can't conduct these signals, you know, from the brain down to whatever part of the body it is. Um, When you introduce a a stem cell, you know, the, the original idea was that, well, it'll sort of graft itself in and then it'll reform that connection. But you, you, you sort of think about, That axon that it has to project, which can be, you know, upwards of, you know, half a meter long, it's very difficult to get that axon to grow even a few centimeters or even a few millimeters in a a cell culture dish, let alone in the body, because that environment is now, you know, an adult or a, a grown system that doesn't have all the signaling cues that would happen during fetal growth. So... As much as stem cells, you know, were, were very sort of uh, an exciting and promising sort of avenue for repair and regeneration, um, the, the focus of their actual utility has kind of shifted into sort of either a, a vehicle for delivery of, you know, protective mechanisms and factors. Um, and there's still groups that are working on regeneration with stem cells, but it, it's become a lot more complicated than people had anticipated. So it's not just a matter of taking these cells, throwing them in there, and expecting them to do what they were supposed to do. And in fact, with animal studies, and something that doesn't often come up in, um, you know, in, in in public news, when you hear about, oh, you know, so and so group, uh, you know, found a way to cure the spinal cord with stem cells. Well, yes, they may have had excellent outcomes in their animals. But um, quite often, these stem cells become cancerous, because they continue to proliferate. So You may have improved outcomes at one degree, but then you've traded off for another, which is the development of cancer. So, you know, it's a very complicated um, therapeutic and one that continues to be refined. Um, And, you know, the hope is that it would be a combination of therapies that would eventually lead to repair and regeneration of the brain.
1: Awesome. That's super cool. Bringing it back a little, you mentioned a little, we kind of spoke a little about the regeneration, um, but I wanna ask a little bit more about kind of axon degeneration rescue, which you mentioned happens in diffuse axonal injury. So that's a lot of big complicated words that not everyone might understand. So if you could break that down a little for us and explain how axon degeneration rescue therapies, what kind of therapies exist and how this method works.
0: Sure. So. With a brain injury, um, your your brain tissues get pulled and tugged in different directions. And if you can imagine in your brain, you have all these very, very fine, thin cables, as I mentioned, which would be the axons that connect one part of the brain to the other. And they're only designed to have a certain physical threshold. So you, you pull them too hard or you pull them too fast. And what ends up happening is they either snap or they get stretched this is more often the case is they get stretched and they don't quite line up again. So the, the, the construction of an axon is really a remarkable piece of biological or evolutionary engineering. So inside the axons, you have um, structural proteins that give it shape. And there are proteins that are constantly shuttling proteins and factors up and down these axons. And so when you get uh, a brain injury and you get traumatic axonal injury or diffuse axonal injury, these pathways or these, these cables that carry all these proteins get disrupted. And so you can think of um, you know if it's, it's like a, a highway um, where you've got these proteins being shuttled back and forth. And if that highway were to get disrupted and all these little shuttles were like cars, you kind of get a traffic jam with all these proteins beginning to accumulate in one part of the axon and then it starts to swell. And then information is not getting trafficked quite as well. So you've got, um, you know, backlogs of protein, you've got ions that aren't transferring as well. And then all of a sudden you've got the swelling that's occurring in the axon. And then that's going to initiate all sorts of other processes that will eventually cause that axon to um, break apart. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the initial uh, tugging and tearing of the axon. You get this gradual uh, buildup of proteins and other mechanisms that contribute to its sort of active demise as it begins to break apart on its own and that can happen you know months and days after your injury so this is what I'm talking about when I say secondary injury and it's a sort of ongoing process and um, you know this is this is something that we're still studying uh, we, we've learned a lot about mechanisms that, are involved in diffuse axonal injury, and we know that it's an active mechanism. So it's not just the result of a passive stretch. Um, after you you're, you you get injured, those axons will look normal at first, but then they begin to look morphologically a bit different as you get misaligned proteins and you know your, your tract proteins begin to build up. And we know that because it's an active process, you know, as proof of principle, we can apply certain drugs and compounds that we know are involved in. Um, you know, activating these, these, these pathways that cause all, all these anatomical changes, and we can actually protect these axons and um, get, you know, rescue some of them, if you will. So that's part of what uh, the mainstay of our lab has been in terms of looking at white matter protection after injury. And to get there, you really have to understand the
2: mechanisms that are going on
0: um, during axonal degeneration. Awesome.
2: Um, so... Yeah, I know. I know you mentioned like your lab is looking at kind of how to protect this damage of um, the white matter. and But what does the brain look like when there is no protection in the first place? You know, like, does it just keep unraveling and keep destroying itself more and more as time goes on? Or are there like natural mechanisms that kind of try to regenerate the damage to the central nervous system or... Does it just stop at one point and just leave that damage as it is? How does that work?
0: So that's a great question. The, the brain, like, you know, so many parts of our body has a lot of mechanisms in place that, it, that that have evolved over, you know, hundreds of millions of years that were designed to repair tissues. So, you know, when you get a cut on your hand and you bleed... You've got clotting factors that come in, you get scar tissue that forms and eventually that cut sort of heals itself. The brain tries to do that to a certain degree, but the amount of, um, I guess, regenerative potential that it has is limited. So we know that, for example, in infants who get brain injuries, they've got more plasticity. Their their, their neurons are just that much more capable of dealing with the injury and repairing and sort of adapting and and making workarounds for pathways that may be damaged and then your your neurons sort of say well i'm going to use this path instead as a workaround because i know this area is injured um with with the adult brain it's a bit more challenging um and you know the um the regenerative the regenerative potential of adult neurons is a lot less um i'm just i don't want to i don't want to go off tangent to much. (laughs) i'm trying to remember what the question was, uh, like, the brain doesn't just sort of um, get an injury and say, well, that's it. That's, that's all we can do, right? And it, it's a very complicated thing because you, get, you have an inflammatory process that happens. So just like, you know, if you get a cut, you have immune cells that go to the cut to prevent infection and that sort of thing. In your brain, you have um, a group of cells called microglia. And those are resident immune cells that are always kind of in your brain monitoring for any kind of infection. So there are systems in place to protect your brain. But what happens with an injury, it sort of pushes that immune system beyond what it was meant to do. And so the response of the brain is, OK, I'm going to go in there and I've, I've got a, a, an, a, an inflammatory reaction happening because I know that something's going on in the brain. I've got cells breaking down. I'm going to clean that all up so that we don't have you know necrotic tissues in the way. But the downside of that uh, immune system activation is that sometimes it sort of overactivates itself. And so uh, the immune system, as much as it was meant to be a good thing for our brains and our body, can actually do a lot of damage to the brain. And so part of that secondary injury cascade involves an overactive immune system where you sort of get these feedback loops of uh, pro-inflammatory factors that just sort of keep spilling into the brain and then you get more and more microglia being activated and it just sort of cycles and then things get worse and worse and worse. And that's all part of the secondary injury. Um, And so one one very active area of research is understanding how to modulate that immune system in just the right way after an injury um, so that you're you're trying to facilitate those beneficial aspects of the immune response, but at the same time dampen those parts that are doing damage to the brain. Uh, And it's a very, very tricky thing because you know, these molecular mechanisms are so intertwined so that you may, you may think that you're having an effect on one pathway that may be good, but then you sort of activate another one and then you're, you're constantly trying to figure out this very complicated puzzle. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, it's been so hard to develop a therapeutic for brain injury because there are so many pathways that are molecular pathways in the brain that are connected.
1: Awesome. Oh, I hope uh, that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, that, that answers it. Um you mentioned a little about how younger children tend to have more plasticity in their brain. So kind of the ability to regenerate and continue regenerating while older adults or as we age, we tend to have less and less brain plasticity. How I guess how can we help modulate this and even with our normal day-to-day behavior and our nutrition and are there kind of therapies or things that are aimed at improving plasticity in, in brains of older adults? Um, it, it's not, um, it's
0: not really my area of expertise, but, you know, just there, there are things that I think we've learned over the years about keeping our brains healthy in terms of mental stimulation. And, you know, we, we do need to think the brain Uh, Is an organ in our body that's just like a muscle for example where if you're not going to exercise it it's going to start to lose whatever capacity it has so your brain is made up of billions of these connections between neurons and it's those connections that allow your brain to function allows you to store memories allows you to communicate with the rest of your body and what we know is that when you have a connection that's strong between a group of neurons, those tend to get reinforced if they're sort of continually used. So if that part of your brain that's involved in, you know, doing math problems, for example, and computations gets used a lot, those neural connections continue to be fortified. Whereas if you're not doing that sort of uh, exercise with your brain, your brain doesn't want to spend that energy reinforcing those connections for no reason. And so those synaptic connections will sort of give way and in, in, in a in a sort of more generalized sense if you're not exercising your brain with reading um you know uh, or, or you know reading and, and just giving it st- stimulation you're not going to um, exercise it in a way that's going to fortify those connections and so um you know think of your brain as having these billions and billions of connections with all these little molecules being shuttled around and if they're not being used, it takes a lot of energy to do these things. And if your brain's saying, well, I'm not using them anyways, why should I bother going through the process of producing these, these factors and these proteins? Well, you're going to lose that capacity. And I think that's where, you know, as you get older as an adult, uh, it's very important to stay mentally um acute you know keep yourself busy learn new things learning doesn't have to stop after you finish school you know you can continue to learn languages music skills and hobbies these are all things that are keep your brain healthy and active uh and then as you as, as you mentioned you know nutrition obviously is going to be very important as well because your brain takes up uh per pound or per per, per mass more energy than any other organ in your body so you've got to give it, you know, good sort of fuel to run on. So that includes proteins and carbohydrates that are going to be healthy for your body, that'll be just as healthy for your
2: brain. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned learning, and I think continuing learning is, is such, such an important thing, just, and I I think it's kind of getting lost in our society, you know, with smartphones, and just like, you know, oh, just Google something quickly. Um, but, also, I, I kind of want to just transition here a bit. Um, you know, working in a research lab, I think you always have these theories and you always have ideas of what's going to happen and what's going to work. Um, but the human body being so complex that that's ser- like that rarely ever happens. Um, so I know we've talked previously and you've told us that, you know, being in research can be very addicting and it can be very very hard because I know we've even talked a lot in this conversation about all the impasses you come to and like all the different problem solving skills you need and and just there's always something you know like if you find the right chain this way you're causing another chain the other way and it's just counteracting your effects so as a scientist how do you find the motivation to keep pushing and to keep 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 trying and learning new things in the lab um, without it really consuming too much of your life.
0: <laughs> it, it, it can be very daunting. And when you when you come into this field as a new student, for example, you know, you don't you really don't know much. And as you begin to read more and more, you realize that, you know, even less than you thought you knew. Um, and you sort of get to this point of where you're like, well, where do I even begin? And how do I even make a difference? And, um, you know, you you pick an area that interests you, that you're going to be passionate about. And there may be 1000s of people working on it. But that's fine. Because there's so much to do, and so much to learn and so much to understand uh, that, you know, you don't, in, 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 as a scientist, you, you want to produce something that's novel and new, and it doesn't have to be something that's going to hit the home run or be the silver bullet that cheers everything. What you want to do is contribute your piece to this large puzzle that everybody is trying to solve and do it in a way that's good. So, um, you know, the scientific method is what we rely on. So we have a hypothesis and we test it and we do it in a way that. Um, you know, we make sure that we've got our controls in place so that when we get our results, we can be confident in them. We've reprodu- we've reproduced them enough times to say, yeah, this is you know, in line with my hypothesis or it's not in line with my hypothesis. So we have to have that scientific rigor there. Um, it does get tricky, you know, where brain injury is a very large um, sort of phenomena that occurs, there's so many different cell types in the brain interacting with each other, and so many proteins, and you know, you've got things happening at uh, the genetic level as well. And it's like, well, where do I begin? In? How do I know that this little piece that I'm looking at is even going to have an effect? And like I said, you know, you, you have to think of it not in terms of am I going to cure brain injury, but have I contributed to our understanding of brain injury, and is that going to push us incrementally closer? to you know finding a cure or finding a way of improving outcomes for people. Uh, and and you know, for me, basic science has been a wonderful career to move into. Um, I have colleagues who are in medicine and they enjoy what they do. I enjoy science uh, and research because I'm doing something new every time I'm you know coming up with an experiment. Uh, there's creativity involved there. Uh, and you know what I tell my students is you're going to get out of your degree as much as you're willing to put into it. So, you know, if you're going to put in lots of hours that will pay off, Uh, but you you do need to find that balance, right. Between, am I going to solve the entire problem or am I going to contribute, you know, a good chunk to our existing knowledge Uh, and remember to balance that. At least for me, it's a matter of balancing it with, you know, work in life and making sure that I have time to enjoy things outside of life.
1: Sorry, I was <laughs> muted there. Um, I guess we have one more question to ask you here before we close off. Uh, it's something that we we ask everyone we talk to. Um, and it's if you had one piece of advice for for future students and future young people interested in this field or in STEM in general, what would it be?
0: um it's a good question i would say uh if you're interested in research in general um get as much experience as you can uh research experience so you know offer to volunteer in a lab for a summer it's it's quite often hard for students to get into labs uh, uh, um you know there's only limited space and limited funds uh, so labs are always eager to take on visors you can see that there's enthusiasm there and everything sort of snowballs into next steps because uh getting getting some volunteer experience is going to have you know is, is gonna, if you're seeking you, you can then have uh, uh a connection there with that supervisor who you might be able to use as a reference that you can apply to graduate school later on um, I think it's important to know that um, you know, or, or to be passionate about that area of research that you're in. Don't just go into research because you know you like to tinker with microscopes, because that's just a tool that you're going to use. What you really should be aiming to do is getting into a field that you're genuinely interested in, and from there you're going to get to learn to use all these tools that are you know neat and wonderful. But um, you know, if if you want to sort of, I think have a long term career in research get started early and pick a field that you're interested in and uh, um, at the same time it's totally fine to switch streams passionate about you know for example it could be cancer research and as you go and you realize well it's not quite for me Uh, and and that's the thing about research there's so many avenues to explore and so many things that we have uh, you know, to, to, to understand that it, it's you can take tool sets that you learn in one type of research and apply it to another. Whether it's cancer and jumping to neurotrauma, or neurotrauma jumping into say diabetes, there are a lot of molecular mechanisms that you can still apply from one field to another. That was a very sort of disjointed <laughs> piece of advice, but no, it, it research has been great for me, and I think uh, um, you know I'd love to see I'd love to see students. And uh, young know, people get more interested in it because there's so much to do. Um, and you know, I think people should know that science doesn't have to be limited to medicine. There's a whole sphere of of work around research that that needs to be addressed, and not just academic research. You know, there's there's work that gets done by large companies, and they they monetize these things, but they've made great strides in understanding diseases and how to treat them.
2: No, I mean. Being young researchers ourselves, you know, that's really nice um, advice to hear. You know, Um, we're trying to get into the labs. And I think a lot of people in the undergrad will like to hear them be told to get into labs early and to start researching early and finding what they're passionate about. Um, So, yeah, just thank you for this interview as a whole. And we really appreciate you coming on to STEMcast and, and sharing your knowledge with us.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure, um, pleasure being a part of this interview. Thanks for asking me.